Oh, good morning. It is my great pleasure and privilege to greet you in the name of Jesus this morning and to be back here. And such a full, to see God's house so full this morning is such a blessing. And to see the church business is done in a way that makes sense. That's, um, yeah, that's something we need, to, we need to care for, to watch out for, isn't it? Because we have traditions that go back hundreds of years. And sometimes we do them not really because they make sense, but just because they're beautiful to us. And so we have to pass on to the children, well, why is this tradition beautiful? So it'll be beautiful to them. Well, so in a couple of days, it's going to be Valentine's Day. And now we had a little discussion about Valentine's Day among the ministry uh, because uh, a meeting was scheduled for Valentine's Day. And somebody said, can we not have the meeting on Valentine's Day? It's going to kind of make my wife not happy. And, <laughs> and so and some of the rest of us said, well, yeah, you know, that's kind of, that's reasonable that she would like, you know, some special attention on, on Valentine's Day. But another brother reminded us, you know, it's really just a, a secular holiday. It's just a made-up thing. Shouldn't you just love your wife all the time? She should just know that you love her. And so we were a little chastised by that, and I don't think he got a whole lot of answers after that. But we did move the meeting. <laughs> so, so most people on this day, they send cards, or they get candy, or they buy flowers. Maybe they'll go out for a fancy dinner to, to try and express feelings for, for the person we love in our life, for our, for our wives or for our husbands. It's a day mostly symbolized out in the world by, by Cupid, a, a Greek god, firing arrows of love through the hearts of couples to join them together. And that's really fairly appropriate because Valentine's Day really is another one of those Christian holidays that was established by the Roman church to replace pagan fertility rites. No, you're not going to do that anymore. You're going to do this. And this is going to be a good thing. That was a bad thing. So we're going to just swap it in there. But it really is actually the feast day of one, two, or maybe three actual saints. We're not, we're not real sure. Now, I actually don't, um, I don't care much for sermons about you know, Hallmark holidays. In fact, I had a heart attack once to get out of doing a Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> that worked, but I decided I was a little extreme. <laughs> so this year I gave the Mother's Day sermon. <laughs> but, it, but it does seem kind of appropriate that maybe this morning in our message we would have, we'd have a love story. But it's a little different than the, than the love stories that you're going to find on the, on the red cards at Walmart. Um, I've told you before I've been preaching this series, Have a Ready Answer. And I started it um, because there were some questions coming from our young people, particularly in the church. And I listened to these questions. And I also realized that a lot of our older people didn't really have a solid answer on, on these questions. So we started this, this series. And I thought I had three or four things in mind. And we would do those. And then I'd move on to something else. So it's been a year. Or maybe a year and a half now, I guess, since we, since we started this series. And there are a lot of questions. There are, there are always questions. So today's message is, have a ready answer, terrible things. 
You can turn with me to Psalm 22. And I'm only going to read the first two verses right now. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, and am not silent. You know, people always often ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Did they deserve it? It doesn't seem so. And take it a little further, the question is probably the most common objection to the faith. If there is a loving God, why does he or how can he let these terrible things happen? Or even a step further, how can you even believe in a God who lets such terrible things happen? It's a fair question, isn't it? And, and really, it's a question that anyone, believer or not, could, could ask. Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to someone that I love? Why is it happening to anyone? In his book, The Case for Faith, Lee Strobel talks about Charles Templeton. And you may or may, I don't think any of you are really old enough to have heard much about Charles Templeton, but you've probably heard of Billy Graham. Um, when they first started the Young People's Missions together, Charles Templeton and Billy Graham preached together. And actually, Charles Templeton was considered the better evangelist, the better preacher. And he went all over the world, and they had this huge organization that sprung up around the two of these men and their, and their fantastic preaching of the gospel. And then all of a sudden, one day, Charles Templeton renounced his faith. And he never preached again. He was never in the pulpit again. After thousands of people had come to the Lord under his preaching. What happened? Well, Lee Strobel went to ask him. He went to interview him. And, and he told him about different struggles that he had had and things that had troubled him, answers he couldn't get straight for scripture, doubts that he had. But mostly, he said he saw this one picture. And it was a photograph from Africa of a little boy, a little young, young boy, almost just a toddler, sitting on the ground. And he was obviously starving to death. And his eyes were just barely open. He looked like he was just about to fall over. And standing just a few feet away was a vulture, just waiting for him to topple over to start to eat him. And Charles Templin said, I can't serve any God that would allow that to happen. It was an incredible photograph. In fact, the, the reporter who took it uh, had his life threatened <laughs> by people all over the world. And, and they said, how could you have taken that picture? Why didn't you go and help that little boy? And he said, well, of course I helped the little boy. I, I went over and I, I, we shooed the buzzards away after I took the picture. But I wanted everyone to see how, you know, the incredible suffering that was going on in that camp. 
And so seeing that picture, Charles Templeton, one of the greatest evangelists of our time, lost his faith. It's not just a question asked by us today. Everyone struggles with it. People in different faiths. The, the Hindus answer it with the idea of, of karma. It's kind of this twisted accountant's version of you reap what you sow. You did bad things and bad things happen to you. You do good things and good things happen to you. And that goes all the way up. The Greeks, well, the Greeks basically decided that the gods were capricious. They just did whatever they wanted. In Homer, we see the gods acting out of jealousy, envy, and just plain meanness. That's the way the Greeks viewed the gods because they saw these things, terrible things happening around them. And it's not an issue that scripture is silent on. Most of the book of Job asks and tries to answer the question, how do these things happen to good people? Job repeatedly asks for the opportunity just to present his case to God. And there are many instances in the Bible where people cry out to God because of the terrible things that are happening to them. If God is sovereign, if he controls all things, well, then can't he make these terrible things go away? And if he can, then why doesn't he? So, what are our answers? First, God's ways aren't our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are my ways your ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So the short answer, really, is we don't know. We can't pretend to always know and understand God's plans. Now, for people who don't have Christ in their life, they have no comfort when terrible things happen to them or their loved ones. Every disaster that befalls them is a mysterious evil with no origin, no purpose, no plan, only pain. But 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. There are things that we can know and understand because we have the mind of Christ. There are mysteries that God has shared with us through the scripture and through the spirit. We have the reassurance of knowing that we serve a loving and a just God. So even though these things happen that we can't understand or see the purpose for, we know that God loves us and that God is just. We know that because of what Christ has done for us. Well, the first question then we have to deal with, of course, goes back to if God created everything, well, then didn't he create evil? Did God create all these bad things? that happen? Well, the answer is no. God is not the author of evil. God's creation is all good, and all his intentions for creation are good. You flip back to Genesis 1. And we'll just start at verse 27. 
So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb-bearing seed which is upon all the face of the earth and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree-yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. And to every beast of the earth and to every fowl of the air and to everything that creepeth upon the earth wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And the evening and the morning were the sixth day. God saw that it was good. God saw that the whole was very good. Each day, God stopped and saw that his creation was good. Like a carpenter building a fine piece of furniture, he stopped at every step and checked his work. Imagine Jesus running his finger along the edge of each cut, checking the fit of each join, a little more sanding here, a little more finish there, a pin here, a touch of color there, until everything, every creature, every fish, every plant, every stone was perfect in its beauty and function. In the 31 verses of Genesis 1, we read at the end of each day that God saw that it was good. The entire creation was very good. When we left home today, it was snowing, and all the trees were covered with snow. And you could see that even out on the little branches, the little tiny twigs, there was a pile of snow just to decorate the trees so that they were all white. It looked almost like, like they were in leaf with, with white, with the snow. How does that happen? I couldn't sit there and pile those little snowflakes up without them all falling off. I'd never have the patience. It, just, it would get to a point where it just didn't matter to me. Okay, we're done with this and knock the rest of the snow off too, right? But God didn't do that. He designed the whole creation so that that happens every time it snows. And so we left in the morning through this beautiful white envelope that was all around us to just see all the wonder of creation. And about the time we got onto Afton Mountain, it was all gone. And I really would have felt silly if I said it was snowing too hard to come to church this morning. <laughs> Creation was very good. Everything was done to perfection, not just because God is perfect, but because creation was an act of love. When you love something or you love someone, only the very best will do. God did not leave Adam and Eve in a broken world. He placed them in perfection. In James 1, sorry, in verse 13, James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. 
Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. So also, when we love someone, we don't do things that risk destroying them. When you have your whole family in the car, you don't drive 90 miles an hour down an icy road, right? So maybe you even get smart and stay home when the roads are icy. You don't do things to take that risk. Now, in his love for us, God will test us in many ways to strengthen us, but he does not tempt us to sin. Notice here, James does not even allow that temptation comes from Satan. No, it arises from within, with our own thoughts and desires. So now, like Job and his friends, we can struggle and debate and discuss and worry, but if we're honest, we know that terrible things happen because of one cause, sin. In Romans 8.22, Paul says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Why? Why does the whole creation groan with the pains of, of labor, travail? Genesis 3, verse 17, God says to Adam, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. All of creation was affected by Adam's sin, Adam and Eve's sin. The perfection and the bliss of living under God's care wasn't just lost to man, but to the animals, to the plants, and to the ground itself. So so how does that work? Do we question the idea that sin causes suffering? Not really. Does sin cause all suffering? What are the consequences of evil works? From Adam and Eve to Cain and even after the flood, people continue to sin against God and to harm one another. Genesis 6, 5 says, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. John three nineteen says, and this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. We struggle when we see innocent people hurt by other people's sins. And we forget that sin is is pervasive. It's, It's everywhere. It's not a problem that's just limited to a few bad people. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. As God's children, have, have we attained a time in our lives where we've become good enough and righteous enough that no one is hurt by our actions anymore? Flip back to 2 Samuel. 
in chapter 12. And down to verse 7. And Nathan said to David, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul, and I gave thee thy master's house, and thy master's wives into thy bosom, and I gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and hast taken his wife to be thy wife, and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife." David was called a man after God's own heart. God called him that. A man after my own heart. And yet, he committed this terrible sin. It's it's no comfort to hear, but sin has consequences. Sometimes they come only to the sinner. But more often, they affect all the innocent people around them. David's sin would destroy his entire family. In the end, it would leave his youngest and three oldest sons dead, his daughter raped by her brother, and his kingdom thrown into war and uproar. Was God the author of this destruction? He states clearly here what is going to happen. Did he cause all these things to punish David? Was there nothing David could have done to stave off this disaster? We're reading a little further on, and starting in verse 15. And Nathan departed unto his house, and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bare unto David, and it was very sick. And David therefore besought God for the child, and David fasted, and went in, and lay all night upon the earth. And the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the earth, but he would not, and neither did he eat bread with them. It came to pass on the seventh day, that the child died. And the servants of David feared to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was still alive, we spake unto him, and he would not hearken to our voice. How will he then vex himself if we tell him that the child is dead? But when David saw that his servants whispered, David perceived that the child was dead. And therefore he said unto his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. And then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshiped. And then he came to his own house, and when he required, they set bread before him, and he did eat. And then said his servants unto him, What thing is this that thou hast done? Thou didst fast and weep for the child while it was alive. But when the child was dead, thou didst rise and eat bread. And he said, While the child was yet alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether God will be gracious to me that the child may live? Despite God's dire pronouncement, David still knew God's mercy. He knew that in spite of his sin, God might have mercy on him, on Bathsheba and the child, 
if he would repent. God did not spare the child, but David accepted that. But could he have done more? Every step of the way along his family's self-destruction, David's actions or inaction allowed it to continue. He had the opportunity to continue to examine himself and to continue to fix the wrongs that would continue to bring the sword into his own house. He never mended his relationships with his sons. He never comforted his daughter. Terrible things often happen as the result of our sins or the sins of others. But what about sickness? Do people just get sick because of sin? Well, much suffering is really just the result of living in a fallen world. In 2 Kings 5, we have Naaman. Now Naaman, captain of the host of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and honorable, because by him the Lord had given deliverance unto Syria. He was also a mighty man in valor, but he was a leper. In 1 Kings 17, 17 and 18, we read, And it came to pass after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, fell sick. And his sickness was so sore that there was no breath left in him. And she said unto Elijah, What have I to do with thee, O thou man of God? Art thou come unto me to call my sin to remembrance and slay my son? And in Luke 8, 43 and 48, tells us, And a woman having an issue of blood twelve years, which has spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any. In the same passage, we have the man's daughter. And as Jesus was returning, the people welcomed him, for they had all been waiting for him. And a man named Jairus came, and he was an official of the synagogue, and he fell at Jesus' feet and began urging him to come into his house, for he had only a daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. And while he was still speaking, someone came from the house of the synagogue official saying, your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. In Luke 7, sorry, verse 11, it says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him in a large crowd. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. And then in John 11, sorry, verse 1, Now a certain man was sick named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. For all these people, there's no suggestion that sin caused their illnesses or their deaths. But how much suffering and mourning is caused by illness and death in the world? Without sin... Would either of these things even exist? No. Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Because the world is fallen, there is illness, aging, and death. These were not part of God's intent for creation, and they will not exist in heaven. 
Revelation 21.4 tells us, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, and neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Isaiah 25.8 says, He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from off all faces, and the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth, for the Lord has spoken it. Death is a huge thing to us, but it's nothing to God. Jesus tells us, you'll do even greater works than I did. Jesus, you raised people from the dead. We're going to do greater works than that? Yes. Because this body is only a temporary shell. The greater work is the saving of souls through the gospel. There's one more cause of the terrible things that we struggle with. Sometimes terrible things happen so that God's glory can be shown. And John 9, 1 through 3 says, And as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sorry, my printer failed me here. I have to go to the first. And Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. No one sinned. And this man lived his entire life to that point blind. Now, this is the first century. There are no seeing eye dogs. There are no computer screens that show things real big. There's no braille. There are no white canes. He had to be carried by his family or led by his family to this place where he sat to beg every day. This, this was no... He couldn't live on his own. It was a terrible thing. And he lived his entire life with this so the glory of God could be shown in him. And in fact, that was only the beginning of this man's troubles. Later, he would be brought before the Pharisees and cast out of the synagogue, thrown out of the church. In John 9, 35 and 38, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And he answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe in him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That the miracle of a man being born blind, being given his sight, showed God's glorious power. But the man's response added to God's glory. He believed, and he became a jewel in God's crown. He couldn't see Jesus before, but he trusted him. And he received not only his sight, but eternal life. Which was the greater gift? If he had not been blind when he met Jesus, 
Would he have accepted Christ? God knows. If he hadn't been blind up to that day for the disciples to see that healing, would they have understood the lesson that Jesus had for them that day? God knows. We think it's not fair. But God knows the truth. Terrible things happen to all of us. We all have or will experience the loss of a loved one. And we'll all experience some disasters, great and small, in our lives. And when these things happen to us, do we stop and think that God may have a gift in it for us? Or how our response to what's happening might glorify him? Job 1, 20 and 22 says, Then Job arose and rent his mantle and shaved his head and fell down upon the ground and worshipped and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave and the Lord taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. One after another, the messengers had come, telling of all the disasters that had befallen Job's family, all his children, all his flocks, all his servants, and he sinned not. He didn't blame God. When the pain of loss strikes us, how will we manage to stand and glorify God? Well, we can do that because of what we do know. Whatever we suffer through, we know that God is there with us. Hebrews 13.5 says, Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Deuteronomy 31.6 and 8 says, Be strong and of good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. And Moses called unto Joshua and said unto him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of a good courage, for thou must go with this people unto the land which the Lord has sworn unto their fathers to give them. Thou shalt cause them to inherit it. And the Lord, he it is that doth go before thee, he will be with thee, he will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. And Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Now, many people will say, well, there's no comfort in that. I, I, I don't find any comfort in that. Why is it a comfort that God is there to watch me suffer. I, that's just adding insult to injury. But that's not what God says. He doesn't promise merely to be present or to just watch. He promises that he will never leave when all the others have turned away. He promises to be in front of you, to protect you, he promises to never fail you, to comfort you, to strengthen you, to help you, to hold you up and keep you from falling. Mark 15, 33 through 35 says, And when the sixth hour has come, 
there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Oh, my printer has failed me again, sorry. <laughs> with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sapathani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, behold, he calleth Elias. Why? Why did Jesus say that? At that moment on the cross, did he feel abandoned by God? I believe that it's impossible to read the Gospels and think that. Now, there's a teaching in a lot of evangelical churches. I've even heard it in our churches. You'll hear it in many places. That at this moment, when all the sin of the world was placed on Jesus, that God the Father couldn't bear to look at him, and so he turned away. That is a bad teaching based on a poor reading. That is turning victory into defeat. At this moment, sin wasn't covering Jesus. Jesus' blood was covering sin. So why did he say this? He was quoting scripture. Anyone hearing what he said would have immediately been able to recite the rest of the psalm. And they should have understood, just as we should, why he said it. Jesus didn't have the breath or the strength left to recite the whole psalm, but we do. And turn to Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not. And in the night season, I am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men, and despised of the people. And they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, saying, He trusted on the Lord he would deliver him. Let him deliver him, seeing he delighted in him. But thou art he that took me out of the womb, that didst make me hope when I was upon my mother's breasts. And I was cast upon thee from the womb. Thou art my God from my mother's belly. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me. Strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws, and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. 
For dogs have compassed me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, and they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots upon my vesture. But be thou not far from me, O Lord, my strength. Haste thee to help me. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for thou hast heard me from the horns of the unicorns. And I will declare thy name unto the brethren. In the midst of the congregation will I praise thee. Ye that fear the Lord, praise him. And all ye seed of Jacob, glorify him. And fear him, all ye seed of Israel. For he hath not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, neither hath he hid his face from him. But when he cried unto him, he heard, My praise shall be of thee in the great congregation. I will pay my vows before them that fear him. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn upon the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And they that be fat upon the earth shall eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him, and none can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. This is not a song of defeat or of mourning. It's a prophecy that perfectly describes the crucifixion. And it's a clear declaration of God's victory. Isaiah 53 says, starting in verse 9, And he made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, because he hath done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There's no way that God the Father turned his face away from his greatest victory. Amen. I was at a conference and a man told us about his grandson. His grandson had had cancer. And he had to have these treatments. And they were injections. And they were very, very painful. And he was just a little boy, maybe five years old. And he just didn't understand what the doctors were doing to him. And he wouldn't hold still. And he tried to get away from the pain that they were going to cause him. And, and Paul was his name, said he and his mother and his father took turns at the treatments, holding him, holding him still so that they could inject him with the treatment so they could cause him this terrible pain. And they had to try to explain to him, you know, it's for your own good. It's because we love you. 
And they couldn't look away. They couldn't close their eyes because they had to be able to tell him what was going on. Now it's going to hurt. Now they're almost done. It won't be long now. Now it's over and we can go home. God did not turn his back on Jesus any more than that grandfather turned his back on his grandbaby. And he will keep his promise and never turn his back on you. When you find yourself in your darkest hour, don't ever believe the lie that God has left you. Call out to him. Look for him. And you'll find him right there holding on to you. See? I told you it was a love story. Shall we have a song?